All right, guys, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We've been in Hebrews for a little while now. Uh, got a couple chapters left, 11, 12, 13. Uh, but it's good that we're taking time to really process through all of this. When Paul was writing, uh, when, he was, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he told them that he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God, referring to God's plan of redemption. So there, there's some things uh, about that that are difficult to understand. There's some things that are offensive to other people. Some things are really good and sweet. Um, but Paul is declaring to them, hey, I didn't shrink back from any of it. If it was difficult, I told it to you. If nobody wanted to hear it, I said it. If it offended the people, I still spoke it in love because it is true and it needed to be proclaimed. Paul faithfully proclaimed the Word of God no matter what it was. When my mom was 40 years old, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. called MS. Uh, it's an it's a, it's autoimmune disease. It basically just attacks your central nervous system. attacks your brain, spinal cord, your nerves. And basically just kind of overrides her body in a lot of ways. Uh, she is pretty much always in pain. Uh, you wouldn't know it, but sometimes she, I mean, she, she's always in pain, always hurting. And it's a chronic disease. Uh, and pretty much she's going to have it for the rest of her life. When her doctor uh, told her, hey, this is what you got. My mom said, am I going to die from this? And the doctor said, you're not going to die from it, but you're going to hurt for the rest of your life. And it's just going to eat you away. It's going to, it's going to really hurt you. Um, she's, she's always in some sort of pain. She has to take medicine regularly to help with it. And when the doctor told her what was going on, he explained everything to her. He explained the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. Didn't leave anything out. Wanted her to understand everything up front so that she would know how to properly uh, navigate her life. You know, it was, it was going to affect her life in a negative way. And so the doctor just laid it out there for her. Now, let me ask you a question. If, if the doctor would have only told my mom... Hey, you know what? You can still do this if you take medicine and, and this will, you know, you're going to feel this way if you take this medicine. And never told her about the pain she would experience. Never told her, hey, this is going to last pretty much the rest of your life. How much do you think my mom would benefit from that? Not a lot. Just leaving out all the negative stuff and only talking about the positive things. She, she would have missed out on a lot. She would have uh, not really benefited from knowing uh, as much about her condition as she really needed to know. Well, I'll tell you that story about my mom. Well, there are parts of Scripture that are a little more difficult to understand. There are parts of Scripture that may offend people. There are parts of Scripture that you may look at and go, what does this even have to do with anything? Maybe a little, um, may make people a little angry. May uh, be hard to hear. May be offensive to people. So what are we to do? Are we to just ignore those parts of Scripture, skip over them, not really pay much attention to them? Paul said to Timothy in his second letter, he said, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So every part of Scripture is profitable for our lives. The, the good parts, the fun parts, the things that we enjoy to talk about, God's love, His mercy, His grace, salvation, but also difficult things such as the text we're going to look at tonight. And why is it important that we, just as Paul declared the whole counsel of God, why is it important that we understand the whole Bible? Why, why is that important? Well, if we don't seek to know the problems, the dangers, the difficulties that we find in the Bible, we will find ourselves in a really unhealthy place. If, the, if my mom would have gone to the doctor and they said, you know, you're just having a bad day. You feel kind of bad and just a little crummy, but you're, you're really okay. And never really told her the problems there. 
she would just live her life thinking, what are all these issues I have to deal with? Not really knowing what was going on. And so we read the whole Bible. We try to seek to understand the whole Bible so that we know what God is, who God is, what He is doing in the world, and how we are to navigate through this. Think about this. If you only read the Scriptures and study the Scriptures that you like, that you enjoy, uh, and you just kind of skip over the, the difficult things, you're going to be spiritually malnourished. You're going to be feeding on an unhealthy diet. It'd be like if you only drank Mountain Dew and ate chicken nuggets and you didn't do anything else. No veggies or anything. You'd be a little unhealthy. But we have to have a good, healthy diet in order for us to grow into the godly Christians, into the mature Christians that God desires for us to be. That's why since I started here, I was serving as a youth pastor. I made it my goal to just teach through books of the Bible. <clears throat> we've gone through several books of the Bible. We've gone James. We've, we've gone through uh, 2 Timothy. We've gone through Ephesians. Uh, now we're in Hebrews. Uh, may have missed something, but <clears throat> we're going through these books of the Bible because I could just pick topics and go, hey, we're just going to talk about God's love for the next four weeks. Then we're going to talk about His mercy. Then we're going to talk about His grace. Then we're going to talk about salvation. I, mean, I, could, I could do it that way, but we would miss a lot of the stuff that we kind of really need to wrestle with. That makes our hearts and our minds think, okay, what is, what is God really saying? What does this passage teach me about God? <clears throat> so we need to have a good, well-balanced diet of Scripture, so to speak, so that we are able to grow into the healthy and mature Christians that God desires for each of us to be. Uh, <clears throat> so let's, as, let's pray, and then I want to look at our text tonight uh, as we think about all of what I just mentioned. So. Father, as we come to your word tonight to study it, to hear it, God, would you help us to understand? <clears throat> God, would you give us ears that would hear your word clearly and minds that would understand it? And God, would you just help us to receive it well? And God, as I was praying earlier today, just, just for myself, be able to communicate your word clearly. And God, I was praying for, for these students, God, that they would be able to hear it and receive it well and, and confidently understanding Uh, what your word says. So God, just guide us through this time now. Give us hearts that are open and receptive and sensitive to your spirit working in us. Would you please, Lord, help me to say what you need me to say. Would you help us to hear what you need us to hear so we can become the people you've created us to be who rightly walk with you and reflect your glory. So God, just work in us this time that we have in your word together. Would you help us to build up one another in the faith and strengthen one another? And we ask all this in the name of Jesus, the powerful and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant which he was by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said vengeance is mine I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. 
For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have, no, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So there are three kind of sections to this text that I want to observe tonight. The first is we see a warning, the warning of apostasy. The warning of apostasy, which means falling away from the faith. Apostasy is falling away from the faith, turning your back on Christ. We see this in verses 26 and 27. These verses give us a fearful warning. And this warning is for those who know the gospel. Those who know the gospel, who have a clear understanding of the basics of the gospel. They know how to be saved from their sin. Yet, they reject it. They reject the truth. This warning is a warning of judgment for these kinds of people. When I worked at the warehouse many years ago, I think Matthew still worked at the warehouse. Yeah, does anybody else work at the warehouse? Awesome. I worked at the warehouse a few several years ago. And when I started working there, I worked as a bus boy. I would bus tables, <clears throat> I would wash dishes. And oftentimes when I was washing dishes, you know, somebody would order warehouse chicken. And they would put the chicken and make the put the cheese and bacon and whatever, honey mustard on top. And they would stick that little skillet in the oven to melt the cheese, right? You want to you don't want to stretch you won't melt the cheese on it. Well, they get it put on the plate and they bring that hot skillet back to the washer and say, hot pan, very loudly, very clearly, so that as I'm washing dishes and I'm grabbing stuff, I know, hey, there's a hot pan right here. If I touch it, I'm going to burn my hand. And so what did I do? When they brought the pan in, I, like a really smart person, grab the pan and throw it in the sink. And every single time, my hands would get burned. I would ignore their warning and my hands would get burned. I knew what would happen if I touched the hot pan and I still did it anyway. I don't know why. Sometimes I go, oh yeah, that's a hot pan. I'm going to just leave there, let it cool down, get a rag or whatever, kind of put it in the sink. But, but sometimes I would just disregard that very clear and very loud warning that I knew was there, even though I knew what would happen if I touched the pan. In these two verses, in verses 26 and 27, we see a very clear warning and a very clear answer to what will happen if that warning is ignored. There's a warning in verses 26 and 27 for those who have a full understanding of the gospel. They know how to be forgiven of their sins. They know the truth, yet they go on sinning deliberately. They go on sinning deliberately. What does deliberately mean? Do what? On purpose. <clears throat> on purpose, yeah. Intentionally, willfully. I'm, I'm going to do this on purpose. I know, I know that pan is hot, but I'm going to willfully grab that hot pan even though I know it's going to burn me. This is talking about people who know the truth, yet they reject it intentionally. Not because they didn't know it or weren't aware of it, but on purpose. They said, you, I know the truth, I reject it. The Bible says for those people in verse 26 that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For someone who hears the truth, knows the truth, 
and still rejects the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So what does that mean? Does that mean that Christ's sacrifice goes, well, nope, not for you anymore. Too late. Ha uh-huh. ha. Sucks to suck. No, that's not what it means. The author of Hebrews has explained to his Jew- Jew- Jewish audience how the old covenant was a picture. It was a representation. It wasn't the real thing, but it was a picture of forgiveness of sins. That the animal sacrifices would be uh, made as a picture of sins being atoned for, right? Those animal sacrifices pointed to Christ's sacrifice. They didn't actually provide forgiveness of sins, but they pointed to the sacrifice that actually can provide forgiveness of sin, which is, which is Christ. And because Christ has come and has been accepted by God as the perfect sacrifice for sins, there is nothing else that can forgive sins. So there is only one sacrifice that is able to forgive sin. And it is the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made that God accepted so that we could be forgiven of our sins. <clears throat> and what this verse is saying, that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, is if a person understands this and still rejects it, there's, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. There's, there's nothing else that can be offered for them. It's like a person who is diagnosed with cancer. And the doctor says, this, this is the only treatment that will work. You will die if you do not take this treatment. This is the only treatment that will work. And you know the consequences. You know this will work. You know the consequences of what will happen if you don't take this treatment. And the patient goes, yeah, I know that. No thanks, doc. I'm good. That seems like, why, why would anybody think that way? That's the same kind of mentality. It's not that the treatment isn't any good. It's just the person has rejected the treatment and said, the only treatment, the only thing that I know can save me, I don't want anything to do with that. Well, there's a punishment. There's a judgment that awaits for those who know the truth, who know the gospel, who know what it takes to be forgiven of their sins, who knows the consequences of what happens if you don't. Yet it says, nah, I'm good, God. I don't, I don't want that sacrifice that Jesus made for me. If a person refuses Christ's sacrifice for sins, there's nothing left for that person except the judgment that he deserves. And you're, mo- you're most likely not going to outright say that you reject Christ. I would be willing to bet nobody in here is just going to flat out say, I reject Christ. So what does that look like? <clears throat> well, I-, I love this quote. I thought it was very powerful. And I'll study in this. Hell is full of people who have a clear understanding of the gospel, but never bow the knee to Christ as king. You think about the demons. James says that the demons even believe in God. They know who God is. They believe that He is God. But they've not bowed the knee to Him as Lord. So you may have an understanding. Someone may have an understanding of the gospel. They may understand and can say the words, Jesus is Lord. I believe in Him. But if you don't bow the knee to Christ and submit your life to Him, what good is that? You can have a clear understanding of the gospel, but if it does not translate to your heart to where God gives you new life and you are transformed by His grace, you will find yourself eventually turning away from Christ. People who know the truth, yet reject Christ and choose to live their own way. This is the people we're talking about. And I would dare say most of the people you're going to come in contact with in life, they're not just going to out flat out just be anti-Jesus. But you will have a lot of people, and you, this may describe you, and certainly a lot of people you come in contact with on a daily basis, who reject Christ simply by saying, I'm just going to live life my way. 
I'm going to pursue my own passions. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'll, I'll keep going to church. I'll keep doing all these things, but I'm going to keep living life my own way. <clears throat> and by doing that, you reject Christ. And you make yourself an enemy of God. This sin, this is a grave sin, and this sin is called apostasy. Apostasy is not just a sin of ignorance, but of willfully rejecting known truth. Where you know what is true, you know what is right, and you willfully, on purpose, ignore it and reject it. You know where this happens most often? It doesn't happen to people who are way out there and just horribly living lives of sin. This sin most happens in the church. Among people who grow up in the church who go to Sunday school, who know the stories, who have been taught the Bible their whole life, who know the Gospel, yet say, nah, I'm good. They know the truth and they turn their back on Christ. That, that's where this most often happens. And, and 1 John tells us this that in 1 John chapter 2 that there are people in the church that we will see one day that he said uh, they, were, they were among us, but they left us, proving they weren't really one of us. Because they, they turn their back on Christ. And if you are really committed to Christ, if you are really a true follower of Jesus Christ, you will not turn your back on Christ. You may stumble, you may feel weak, and you may fail and sin. You will, but you will not turn your back on Christ as this sin is here described. And that's why there's a strong warning. If you know the truth of Christ, don't turn your back on Him, but run to Him. Don't put Christ off. Because if you do, if you know the full truth and you still reject it, there's nothing else God is going to offer to you. He has offered His Son as a sacrifice for your sins so that you can be forgiven and have eternal life. And if you reject this, there's nothing left. The only thing that is left is God's right judgment on your sin. So first we see this warning. Second, we see the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Verses 28 through 31. Verse 28 says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, that that phrase set aside, it means to reject or to declare invalid. It it really shows a rejection of authority. I'm setting aside this rejection of authority. I know the speed limit says 55, but I'm going to go 70. I don't care what the law says. That's that's what this kind of mentality is. I'm going to do what I want to do. I know what nobody has authority over me. And to reject the law of Moses was to, was to reject and rebel against God. Since who's the one who gave the law to Moses? God. Right? God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so, essentially, rejecting the law of Moses was rejecting God. And the punishment for rejecting the law of Moses was death without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses. Why? Because they were rejecting God. So if that was the punishment, if it was death without mercy against this law of Moses, how much more severe the punishment for those who reject Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. It's bad enough that people rejected God under the Old Covenant. But now that Christ has come, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, God Himself incarnate, and has given Himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin, and people reject Christ now, how much more severe do you think that punishment will be? 
We think about this offense against God, this sin against God. It's, it's threefold. It's more than just saying, no, nah, I'm good. It's, it's threefold. Look at verse 29. This offense is threefold. It says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has done what? Has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified. And has outraged the Spirit of grace. Do you see the words the author has chosen to use? This strong vocabulary. This, this is a serious thing. This is a serious event, offense that deserves the most serious of punishments. Trampled underfoot. You remember Matthew 5.13 where Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything except to what? Be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So this phrase, trampled underfoot, it's the same phrase there. It's the same one. It's to consider something as worthless or of no value. When I was uh, in high school, my brother and I used to, every time we would go anywhere, whether we were walking uh, into a store, anytime we'd go in a parking lot, out of the gas station, down a sidewalk, anything, we would look for coins. We had a competition to see if we could collect the most money looking for coins on the street or money, whatever. We see something shiny, we run over, pick it up. And what, well, as I got older, I was like, you know, that's kind of gross. People spit, there's gum, they're all kind of just junking. I just, I kind of got over that. And now as I'm walking by, I'll see a penny or something, I'm like, okay, I don't care anything about it. I just keep on going. It doesn't mean anything to me anymore. That, that's the same idea as what is being said here. Trampled underfoot. You, you walk past, you see Christ, and you're like, nah, it's not worth it. What once used to be so attractive and so glorious, you, you now look at it and you go, hey, I know the truth of Christ. I know the value of the coin. I used to love it. Now I don't care anything for it. What the apostate does is, hey, I, I know the beauty of Christ. I know the glories, the riches of His goodness. Nah, it's not worth it. It's not worth it anymore. You trample underfoot the Son of God. You're, you're walking past Jesus and you're looking at God the Father and saying, I don't care anything about your son. Jesus means nothing to me. Now, we're not going to outright say that. But we can live this by rejecting him, by choosing our own way. And by rejecting Jesus, you reject the father. The second part of this offense, we see, and, and profaned the blood of the covenant. <clears throat> profane means to count Jesus' blood as worthless. It's just common. It's just any old blood. Jesus' blood is just as good as animal's blood. It's just as good as Joe's blood. It's all the same. Doesn't matter. It's not really that special. There's nothing There's nothing really unique about the blood. That's what it means to profane the blood of the covenant. This covenant that God has established as an eternal covenant with His people. We profane the blood of the covenant. We're saying Jesus' blood is just common. It doesn't matter. It's, it's nothing more than the old covenant. In fact, it, you, you know, it may not even be the only way that we can reach the Father. You know, it's, it's just whatever. That, that's what it means to profane the blood of the covenant. Not believing His sacrifice actually forgives sin. That it's not special. There's nothing significant about it. And the third part to this offense, and outraged the Spirit of grace. Insulting the Spirit. Insulting the Holy Spirit who has, one, worked in the life of an unbeliever to begin with to draw us to God so that we see the beauty of Christ and are drawn to Him for salvation. And, and, and one who knows the truth, whose Spirit has been working in their lives and they fail to respond to Christ in, in faith 
and, and they, they don't respond and they're, they're insulting the Spirit and saying, no, I'm good. You've worked in me, Spirit, but I, I don't care. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not going to respond in faith. Do you see how great this offense is against our God? This is what a person does when he knows the truth of Christ and rejects Him. Lives his own way. Does whatever he wants to do. And God has said in verse 30 that vengeance is mine and I will repay. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will judge His people. He will repay. I thought this was very profound as well. God, a lot of times when people read the Old Testament, sometimes even the New, they'll, they'll read about God and, and what He's done. And I saw, I heard somebody mention, though, it may have been the pastor who came down uh, this past week, and somebody was talking about how uh, somebody was reading through the Old Testament, they got to the book of Joshua, and was talking about how God commanded the destruction of these cities. Like, how could I, how could I follow a God who destroyed cities? Just they, they see this vengeful, angry God. A lot of people who don't understand the Bible, that's what they think of God. But we also need to understand, we need to understand with that, that God's wrath is just against sin. Right? He's not just going out looking for who you can kill and try to destroy. His, his anger is against sin. The flood, Genesis 6, was because the people were extremely and just continually growing more wicked and more evil. And so God wiped out the evil. But we need to understand too, God is long-suffering. He is patient. He is patient with us. He is loving. He is infinitely gracious. The Bible says He's not willing that anyone should perish, but should all should come to repentance. That's God's desire for you. That's God's desire for your friends, for your family. But for the one who turns his back on God's grace, there's nothing left that God can offer or do for him. Only judgment remains. God's judgment is against sin and the one who continues to sin deliberately, choosing sin, choosing to go their own way, rejecting Christ, ignoring the sacrifice that God has given us to forgive us of our sins. That person has taken God's sacrifice, thrown it aside, disregarded it as worthless and of no value, and has chosen God's judgment for his sin. That's the warning, that's the judgment. But then we see this positive. He ends on a positive note, which is a good thing. And then we see the endurance of believers. <clears throat> the endurance of believers in verses 32 through 39. The endurance of believers. After a terrible warning of judgment to come, if they were to turn away from Christ now, after knowing the truth, the author of Hebrews offers these Jews encouragement and hope. And the same is for us if we will commit to Christ and endure. The author had some knowledge of his audience. He knew the people he was writing to. He knew that they were involved with their church. He knew they were religious people. He knew that they were closely associated with other Christians. Yet these things alone cannot save a person from their sins. In fact, verses 32 through 34, it describes that although these people were not Christians, they were so closely associated with Christians that they had experienced persecution. Look at verses 32 to 34 with me. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you had received the truth, you're not a Christian yet, but you've been taught the truth. 
What happened? You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You suffered. Sometimes being publicly exposed. You were abused in public. You were afflicted in public. You were partners with those who were persecuted. You had compassion on those who were in prison because of their faith. You joyfully accepted people raiding your property and taking everything you owned. Because you knew that in Christ there is a better possession. And you're not even a Christian and you understand these things. The author is saying, remember these things. They were so closely associated, it was kind of like they were guilty by association, right? They stood alongside other Christians and even suffered with them, yet they themselves were not Christians. You know, I grew up playing soccer and I played for New Albany High School, but I don't play for New Albany anymore. But this would be similar to like if I went to the high school down the road and I talked to Coach Baker and I just started practicing with him. I practiced with them. I ran drills with them. I conditioned with them. I sweated with them. We worked out together. Went through some of the sufferings of practice, some of the good things, experienced it. I got to know the players. I got to know the drills. I got to know the, know the game with them. But am I on the team? No. But I'm very closely associated with them. But I'm not on the team. What the author is saying is for these unbelieving Jews who are on the verge of believing, they know everything they need to know. In order to come to faith in Christ. They know the rewards that come to those who are faithful to Christ. They know the truth. They know those who are Christians. They even stand up for the things of God. You're so close to being a Christian. Don't turn away from Christ. How tragic it would be for someone so close to Christ. Who knows the truth. To just say, nah. I'm going to turn away. I'm going to go back. What a tragedy. Don't turn yourself away from Christ. Commit yourself to Him. Verse 32, this this instruction to recall, to remember, it literally means to reconstruct your thoughts. So like if you think of like you're studying for a test and you're trying to recall the things that you've studied, you're trying to reconstruct your thoughts. If you're like me, sometimes I'll remember where something was on a page. I remember like if I underlined it or circled it, I remember what that looked like, where I colored it, and all this and that. I try to remember certain things. I'm trying to reconstruct my thoughts so I do well on the test. That's what the author is encouraging these unbelieving Jews to do. Reconstruct your thoughts. Remember how you even suffered for the sake of the gospel and you weren't even a Christian. But you did so because you knew the blessings that come to God's people. You knew, you saw how God's people endured in the faith and how, how, how you're going to need that. Remember these days. Remember these. And and don't just remember, but fully commit to Christ because you've seen the goodness of God. You've seen how He sustains His people in the midst of persecution. You've seen it. You experienced it yourself. You've been right there with them. Don't just be a watcher, but, but get in the game. Partake in this. And this may describe some of you. This may describe some of you some of your friends, some of your family members. You know the truth. You know what Christ has done for you on the cross. You have no doubt about it. If someone asks you to share the gospel with them, you could do so very well. You're involved with church. You proudly stand up alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll stand for what is true and what is right and what is just. Yet you yourself have not fully committed to Christ. When the going gets tough, you back, you back up because you're like, I, I'm still not sure if this is worth it. You'll stand along with other people, but, but when, it, when the going gets tough and, and pressures come in, you're like, I don't know. 
Think about this. Think about if when Ivy and I started dating several years ago, we dated, got to know each other. I got to know her family, got to love her family, building strong relationships. We would go on dates. We would enjoy our time to go together, even going through some struggles and difficulties while dating and, and really just growing together. We talked about getting married. We planned a wedding, but I never would commit to marrying her. Think about that. How horrible would that be for me to go so far and then turn back and say, no, I'm good. (laughs) That is a tragedy. Now take that same mindset and think about someone who grows up in church. Think about someone who learns the Bible. They hear the gospel. They're surrounded by Christians. They get involved with the church. They love serving others. They have close Christian friends. They know the whole truth of the gospel. They know the sacrifice Christ has made. But they're unwilling to commit. They back up. I don't know. I don't know. They're unwilling to commit to follow Christ. Now that is a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And it's more than a tragedy. It's a horrible offense against God. That deserves the worst punishment. Thinking back to the illustration I gave just a second ago with Ivy. Think about how would she feel about me? How would her family feel about me? It'd be different if, you know, something. But but think about how how would she feel about me? If I got all the way up to the point, how would they respond? And then backed out. How would they respond? What What does me backing out of a marriage say? It basically says, hey, I've spent this time with your daughter. I've spent this time with you. You're just not worth it to me. That's what that says. And so for someone who knows the truth of Christ, who's been enlightened, who knows what Christ has done, and then walks away, what they're doing is they're saying, you know what, Jesus, you're really not worth it. You're really not worth following I'd rather just live my life my own way, come what may. You say I get God's judgment for my sin, whatever. Jesus, I'm not going to follow you. That's what happens for someone who knows the truth and then backs away. And if that's where you are tonight, hear me say this. Don't turn away from Christ. If this is someone you know, talk to them. Encourage them. Don't turn away from Christ. You're so close to being a Christian. Don't turn away from Him now. And listen, if you know the truth, you know the blessings God gives to His children, you know the joys you experience being a Christian, you know the promises that you have in Christ, don't turn away from that. That's what the author says in verse 35. Don't throw it away. Don't throw away everything that you know. When I ran track in high school, I ran and I ran and I ran a lot. Some days were fantastic. I felt like running. I did great. And some days just were awful. They were were just horrible. I didn't feel like running. I didn't feel like doing anything. But I knew the reward. I knew that if I practiced well, I worked hard, that I could uh, do well in in meets and win races and place in races and be able to advance and move forward and do well. I knew the reward. I looked forward to the reward. I even suffered for the reward. But without running a race, I never would have received a reward. 
There's a difference between knowing about the rewards and actually receiving the rewards. Listen, suffering and hardship, it tempts many people who are on the verge of committing to Christ to turn away. They look at it and they go, I, I know, but I just, ah, I'm unwill- I-, I just I can't commit. I'm not going to commit. It turns many people away. We need endurance to remember the reward that you have in Christ. But just because you know the reward doesn't mean you've received the reward. You've only received, you only receive the reward, namely that of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, when you have, as verse 36 says, done the will of God. For, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the reward. You need endurance to persevere, saying, hey, I know this is worth, worth it. I'm going to commit to Christ. And as you've, as you've done the will of God, as you've placed your faith in Christ, then you receive the reward. When you've done the will of God, repenting of sin and turning and trusting fully in Christ. And this is what God calls us to. This is what God calls each and every one of us to. It's faith in Christ. God calls each of us to faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is what pleases God. Christ will return. In a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. What are we to do in the meantime? It's to live by faith in Christ. And as we'll see next week when we start Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. This is the encouragement that we have in Christ, that if we have faith in Him, we will be saved. Our souls will be preserved. And the one who has faith in Christ demonstrates that he has faith in Christ by obeying God's will, by obeying Christ in every aspect of your life, not just the things that seem good or you want God to be a part of your life. You don't make God a part of your life. When Christ comes into your life, He is your life. He makes you new. There's no, he, he doesn't come and share His throne in your heart. He comes and takes over. This is proof of real faith. This is what pleases God. This is what saves your soul. This text, this, this, this is a difficult text to hear, but it is a sobering reminder to all of us about the seriousness of rejecting Christ. Don't think you can just live your life how you want to and that God just lets you slide in and be okay. God takes sin seriously. He takes the sacrifice of His Son seriously. This is a serious reminder for what happens to those who reject Christ, especially those who know the truth and reject it. So what is your response tonight? For all of us, your response to this text is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. For the believer to respond, praying that God would strengthen your faith in Christ, that you would remember the reward, that you would be able to focus on on the reward and have endurance to persevere, to stand firm with Christ To look forward to Him. To seek Him above all else. That you would have greater boldness to share Christ with others and call them to repentance of sin and placing their faith in Christ. So for the believer, faith in Christ, that your faith will be strengthened. But for the unbeliever, your response is to pray that God would give you faith. That God would give you faith in Christ. That if you've known the truth, that as you've been presented with the truth, that you would not turn away from the truth. But you would turn to Christ. You wouldn't run from Christ forfeiting the only sacrifice available for your sin. 
but that you would turn to Christ, fully committing to Him. And so, when you hear the Word of God, you have two responses. You either accept it, respond in obedient faith, or you reject it. And so I ask you tonight, how do you respond to God's Word? What will you do? Let's pray. Father, as we think about Your Word, we think about the seriousness of this warning about rejecting Christ. God, would You help us to examine ourselves? We're told all throughout the New Testament to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith and, and to do some introspection. God, would You help us to look closely at our lives to see whether or not we truly belong to You and are walking with You God, I pray that if there is anyone in here who knows the full truth of Christ, who hears it, who knows it, who even even believes to be true, but yet has not submitted their lives to You, has not committed fully to Christ, bowed the knee to Christ as King, God, would You break them down to the core tonight where they can't move even, God? And would You just give them a new heart? Would You... Cause them to cry out for repentance and for faith and for salvation in Christ. Lord, would you work among us and give us greater faith. Give us faith for those who need it and give those who have faith greater faith to walk with you. And Lord, I ask all these things in the holy, the precious name of Jesus. Amen.